Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you're in the Boston area or if you have some free time on your hands and a hot air balloon or other mode of conveyance, I'll be speaking on Saturday, October 12th at soundeducation.fm, an educational audio conference at Harvard. My talk is called Beyond the Spirit of the Staircase, Learning as Play, Play as Learning. And in the spirit of Think Again, there's plenty of time afterward for a conversation. Sound Education starts next Wednesday, the 9th of October, and it's full of amazing leaders in thought-provoking audio from shows that there's a good chance you're already listening to. Soundeducation.fm from October 9th to 12th. Learn more at soundeducation.fm. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. In the past half century or so, feminism has had its hands plenty full dealing with the abuse and inequality women suffer at the hands of horribly behaved men and the systems they build. Too full to worry much about what the hell is going on inside those men and why. And there are powerful arguments to be made for the fact that it is not women's responsibility to help men figure out how not to be monsters. But I've noticed an interesting shift in the discourse lately. In the wake of the Me Too movement, things happen fast these days, that blew up at scale in 2017, some of the threads of the public conversation have turned toward what my guest today might talk about in terms of the gender ecosystem. The ways that ideas about gender shape our identities and behavior and the fact that those behaviors impact everyone in society for better and worse. Regardless of whose responsibility it is to solve these problems, the question of where masculinity goes from here should matter to everyone. My guest today is journalist and cultural critic Liz Plank. She was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30, has produced and hosted multiple acclaimed digital series for Vox, and is the author of the new book, For the Love of Men, A New Vision of Mindful Masculinity. Welcome to Think Again, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a big fan. I'm geeking out. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm here. Well, I, I'm, I am really glad to have you here, and I'm a big fan of your book and what you're trying to do with it, mm. which is... Which is to say, I think these are really hard conversations to have. They're really complicated. I mean, they're complicated because there are so many emotions on all sides. And I think there are some very black and white cases like throughout history and now as well of like horrible, disgusting, abusive men of what we might call toxic masculinity, just egregious, you know, black and white examples that we can call out. Most recently, um, Epstein, for example. Yes, exactly. It's hard to choose. By the time this comes out, there'll be another (laughs) serial rapist. Exactly. And then there are lots of men, and I count myself among them, somewhere in the middle, kind of struggling to figure out where they fit within this whole picture, Mm -hmm. how to be an ally, how to negotiate their own sense of masculinity, their own kind of like you know, if if you're a hetero male, like your own kind of sexuality yeah. in this crazy, messed up landscape. Yeah. So let's start there. Yeah. When's the <laughs> first time that you started to examine your own masculinity? I'm very curious because I think that we often see these men as being sort of a minority or, or that it's not usual for men to have these questions and this self, you know, examination. And from interviewing numerous men, even the, the most progressive ones, I would ask them, you know, what's hard about being a man? And I say this in the book, they right. looked at me like, you know, I'd ask them like how many, you know. Right. Men don't know. They don't know how they, to answer they, that question. All over the nev- world, they have yes, problems yes. with that. Yes. <laughs> and, and they've never been asked that question and they've never asked themselves that question. So I'm, I'm just curious for you, did it happen through an interaction with a woman or did it happen? interaction with a man like when did that start I'm so glad that you asked me that actually because okay so I think these conversations happened although I didn't know that it was about masculinity I think it started really early you know the conservatives that you talk to in the book like people like Tommy Laren and that like guy that was with her they frame things in terms of alpha and beta males alpha being Mm -hmm. good beta being Mm -hmm. not good right Mm -hmm. within that conversation I mean I have broadly seen in a lot of performances of masculinity that things break down sometimes along those kind of along those Mm -hmm. lines in terms of like ultra aggressive what you might call alpha males I don't know and then 
more reflective, thoughtful, you know, mm. the ones that kind of get run roughshod over. I was the latter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my earliest memories of masculinity are like on fields running around yeah. after a ball, getting knocked down by some guy who had hair on his arms already at the age <laughs> of, you know, eight or whatever. And full beard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <why> full beard. <laughs> and, you know, and sort of growing, growing up within that and trying to figure, you know, and then like yeah. flash forward, um, I went to a high school in D.C in the same pantheon of schools that Brett Kavanaugh went to. Wow. uh, All boys private school. Yeah. And remember sitting around in our, uh, what was called the senior room, which was sort of this dungeon that they they Mm. gave us, listening to football and lacrosse players bragging about date rape. Bragging about, not date rape, what do you call it? Like drugging someone or they were drunk at a party and whatever, right? Wow. And in the midst of the Kavanaugh hearings, I was like, that was triggering so many Mm. memories for me because I just sat there hating them. But those Mm. guys dominated the school. They were like a wolf pack, you know? Yes. And that's the thing that we don't really talk about, which is we often talk about the system, like the hierarchy, that men are at the top, women are the bottom, and that women, you know, are being oppressed or being marginalized. and, And then men are, you know, dominating that hierarchy. We don't often talk about the hierarchy within men and that there's also a hierarchy and that there's also a lot of people who are at the top who get to set the rules and usually that those are the bad rules right these uh hyper masculine or these traditionally sort of masculine ways of expressing yourself as a man that are very bad for for you and bad for others right this like yeah, yeah. you know raping people as a way bragging about rape right that that yeah, heightens yeah. your status not just yeah. are you you're, you're raping people in your own personal life but you think that that makes you a better man than other guys right. and you're competing over that and other men are somehow yeah expecting yes, that from you and exactly. Exactly. You're, you're like, I mean, there are even men probably within that circle of mm-hmm. rapey men mm-hmm. who are lower down in the hierarchy yes, trying raper. to impress yeah, others, yes. you know, yeah. <laughs> Which is, and yeah. I'm convinced, and I might be wrong, and this, there was a moment during the, I don't know if I can say pussy tape, you can bleep me. Yeah, you can uh, say whatever. The president says it, so I can fucking say it. Uh, <laughs> you know, during the Access Hollywood tape where you obviously hear Billy Bush like wheezing, like, just <laughs> like, And I, a lot of people obviously were mad at him. I think that the backlash was warranted. When I listened to that tape, I didn't hear a man who was enjoying himself. I heard a man who was laughing out of discomfort and wanted probably the moment to pass. And this is why I talk about the the patriarchy as a pyramid scheme. I think that a lot of men go along with the patriarchy, but don't actually enjoy it. And the myth that I ascribe to being a feminist in academic spaces, you know, I have a master's in gender theory. I operated in these spaces for a long time. I was a reporter and reported on on women's rights for a very long time. And in these spaces, there's this assumption that men are enjoying this. And I don't, I'm not convinced that you are. Well, so so (laughs) this is what I want to talk about a little bit, right? Because so there was a moment where you talk about the great, what do you call it? The great suppression. uh, Suppression. A moment when like in the nineties or so, when women are starting to say like enough I'm done with doing the emotional labor for men I'm going to explore I may explore sexuality with women Mm -hmm. I'm certainly going to spend more time with my female Mm -hmm. friends Mm -hmm. I'm going to break up with you know whatever whatever and in that time period and then afterward as we started to see in social media like proliferation of like snarky terms you know mansplaining bromance Mm -hmm. you know men Men are trash manspreading whatever whatever Mm -hmm. so as one of these guys sitting there like i'm neither i'm not on the radically aggressively male end of the spectrum but there was a moment where i was sitting there and i was i was one of these guys feeling like you know it's not that easy navigating masculinity period and now i just feel like there is a categorical all-out yeah. assault on men. And yeah. clearly, these terms, these bombs and whatever, they're directed at individual behavior. Mm-hmm. But because everything is so scattershot mm-hmm. on social media and mm-hmm. you're speaking to the whole world mm-hmm. at once, there was a moment where it was like, you know, fuck what men feel, you yeah. know? Oh, totally. I mean, I still, I, I was on Instagram yesterday. I was looking for, you know, a perfect gif uh, for my Instagram story, which I know you're not, you don't have Instagram. We, <laughs> I, we, I, I you're going to be in your first Instagram when I we think do I'm this gonna, podcast. I think I'm going to get on it just to see, yeah. <laughs> But there's these, anyway, there's these gifts of like the the day. And one of them was like boy tears, you know, this like little bottle that's sparkly and as a way of like, you know, who cares about boy tears? Right. And I just, again, this makes me, I mean, I'm listening to you and 
and I have like I, I feel a tingling in my heart of sadness because I just find it, it. It really makes me sad. It really makes me sad that we would be ridiculing tears coming from a person based on their gender. To me, that is the epitome of what feminism should be, you know, standing against, right? That because these tears or because this pain is coming from someone who is male, then we're going to ridicule them. We're going to humiliate them. And that that pain doesn't matter. That's what really I feel like we are. And this is a much broader conversation in terms of the political time that we're going through, right? Right. We're seeing this in, in every kind of way where we're seeing progressives react to horrible tactics from the other side, from the most vile president in history in very objective standards. We've never had a president literally utter the word pussy on a campaign stage and then also hear him talk about it in a bus, right? In a workplace setting. And I get scared that I see it in feminist spaces and I saw myself do that. And that's why I'm very critical of it. You are like, you are right in the middle of this. Oh my God, I was in the middle of it. You're on all of, Mm -hmm. you have been extremely active at precisely the moment on social media Mm-hmm. where all of this it, it, has Yes, has bumbling, happened. bumbling. Yes, yeah. exactly. And you know, I want to come back to what you were saying about growing up because I, so I spent three years in a private school in Montreal, which is, it's very still different from the Brett Kavanaugh private all boys school. But it was, I had to change schools basically because I got violently bullied exclusively by boys. And what happened is my best friend basically, who was a boy, was the sweetest person. He was the most important person in, in my life. And, bas- mm. and then I happened to have a boyfriend and then everything changed. And it went from long, beautiful conversations on the phone to long threatening emails to the point where like threatening to kill me. And so I had to change schools. And then I went wow. to, because it was at the very last minute, uh, 10 days before school was starting when I was going into the 10th grade, I basically had to go to the, to the school in my neighborhood because they ha- they were obligated to take me. And it was a very multicultural, very, but a poor neighborhood. You know, it's actually in Justin Trudeau's writing in Montreal. And, and at the end of school, we would have like cop cars lined up at the metro station. Mm. Um, we weren't allowed to wear bandanas because okay. the, the, they, they were literally gangs. Yeah. So all this to say that I went to a much less good quote unquote school and my experience was so much more positive. And I didn't experience that kind of, there's a kind of bullying, there's a kind of pernicious toxicity that is born out of entitlement. I think entitlement is such a, there's such toxicity there that we don't often talk about. And the last thing I'll say is that what happened at that private school was really difficult for me and like traumatic in many respects. What was equally traumatic than what happened to me is what I saw happen to other boys. This crew of boys didn't just go after me in very gendered ways, right? They groped me. They sexually harassed me. They also would do these rituals where they would humiliate. They would choose one boy that they would that would be out. And everyone would kind of hear after school, they're going to do this thing to him. And school would end, the bell would ring, and they would all run after this guy. All of a sudden, like one guy would scream. It was so tribal. One guy would scream some, like, some word. They'd all start running after him. He'd start running away. They would grab him eventually because there were 30 or 40 of them. And they would lift him up in the air and do like a 40 person wedgie basically. And, and then just again, rise him up to, so that everyone could see him in pain and be humiliated. Yeah. Even the word, even the word like wedgie, like cartoonizes something that is like, you know, profound torture and humiliation. Can you talk about that? Isn't that so interesting, right? (laughs) Yeah. And there's, it's It's a swirly. We put his head in the toilet. Like, you know, these terms that sort of minimize the, I mean, allegedly, I've right. never seen one. But, right. Yeah. That's yeah. so. But it, yeah, it's torture, and yeah. it's so. It's it's so also so so sexual too, right? Like to hurt his gen. I mean, I've never. And what is that? So yeah. I mean, so you know, these are these are boys that are these are boys that are sort of like something is speaking through them. It's the it's this culture of masculinity, yeah. culture of dominance that yeah. has been transmitted to them, and that must then somehow be ritualized in these forms of torture that establish, like, as you point out in your book, tolerance for pain and suffering. Mm. I mean, the hazing rituals that people go through Mm. at fraternities, for example, tolerance for pain, stoicism, like I can suffer without Mm -hmm. feeling it or caring. Mm -hmm. Mm 
-hmm. And that's what it means to be a man. And then also just, yeah, the hierarchy, right? And so there are people, as you write in your book, you know, you talk about biological essentialism and you talk about that there's science, there's sort of science on both sides of this, this question, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, what are there innate differences between men and women biologically? And if so, how strong are they? And I don't know, at one point you kind of say it's a spectrum, but then for the most part, I think you're saying that that it's just too complicated mm-hmm. to actually assign yeah. clear differences yeah. in behavior yeah. based on biology. Yes. But those who lean toward biological essentialism and then those people like Jordan Peterson that you talk about, what do you, what's your name for them you call that this is, I don't know. That Masculinely moral panic. Moral panic, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, moral panic warriors, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, they're clinging to in defense against shifting gendered norms, they're clinging to very rigid kind of biologically based or anchored conceptions of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. You know, where I'm at in all this right now is like, and I didn't study gender studies or anything, but where I'm at is that gender is clearly a performance. It looks to me like, and I've read some of the studies as well well, on both sides, it looks to me like there may be some biological elements. I feel like it's okay for there to be a little bit of both. I get nervous when I think that people on the gender studies end of things want to automatically dismiss any research that might suggest a biological difference. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we, this is what we do, you know, we, you know, is in feminism and, and, and sort of gender studies versus, I don't know, yeah, neuroscientists or Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan or whatever. But right. <laughs> but I think that we often are responding to an extreme with an extreme where nuance is, if you're admitting to any <laughs> nuance in this conversation, then you're giving them, you know, uh, um, I don't know, like you're like se- seeding ground seeding to ground, them or yeah, something. Or, or they're going to use that little bit well, the, to then the discredit w- you. Right. The fear, which I think is legit, is yeah. that there's a danger in there, yes. that they're then going to use that as a platform yes. on which to build yes. rigid And, norms, and it, you know, like, what it reminds me of is even, you know, in the book, I do talk about women's responsibility in some of this, right? Mm-hmm. That we obviously need men to be critical of masculinity, of sort of idealized masculinity. They need to be having these conversations, challenging each other. There's, a, I mean, most of the labor we want men to be doing for themselves. Right. But at the same time, <laughs> we also need to acknowledge that women are transmitting some of these values. They are raising their boys according to a lot of this as well. And yeah, Tommy Lahren, Susan Venker, my, my only negative review right now is from Susan Venker, Phyllis Shafley's <laughs> niece, um, who I know did not read the book because she doesn't realize that she's in it um, in her entire <laughs> review. She's like, Plank, who's only 32, clearly doesn't know, like, you know, basically she's like, she's too young and stupid. And then, and I love that, yeah, she just clearly has not read it. Cause yeah, you're, you're, you're in it, Suzanne. And I told, I tweeted her, I was like, let me know if I can send you a signed copy. Uh, <laughs> um, but I do think that it's important to acknowledge that we are all part of the system. And again, before I started writing this book, I probably would have never said that because somehow admitting that women are somehow complicit or responsible, then opens it up for Jordan Peterson and for Tucker Carlson to say that women are the one who are, it's like our fault, right? right? right and right. and it's so and, annoying that we can't have these nuanced conversations. And, um, there is, and there is this thing of women wanting to divest themselves legitimately of the emotional labor of yes. fixing men. I get that. Mm-hmm. Like, like, as you point out in your book, there are so many relationships in which women find themselves just playing the role of like, therapist, emotional kind of hug to the, to the man's wounded yeah. feelings because he has so few outlets. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the problem is that if somebody is in a pathological state, they're not the person best suited to take care of themselves. Yeah. So indeed, some of the change or some of the conversation, if there is any change to happen, does have to be initiated by women because a lot of men aren't in a position to do it effectively. Mm-hmm. And then I think, and simultaneously yeah. concurrently, I think there's a lot that men can do in yeah. terms of starting groups. You know, I think back, yeah. I, I don't want to over talk, but oh I my, think- I mean, these are all- I, I love that I've not had your 
I've done I've done a lot of these and none of the questions I've had before. So I'm I'm digging this. Yeah, so much. Awesome. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> well, just you know, please um, feel free to manterrupt me if I <laughs> if I talk too much. But no, I was thinking that I, I thought about like Robert Bly. You remember the poet Robert Bly? Mm. He did this like man's movement in the '90s. Men's mm. movement. This was when I was in college at wow. NYU from like '90 to '94, and that was a big kind of cool neo-feminist moment. Like mm. Ani DeFranco was busting out and like all kind of female singer-songwriters. And there was, it was right. a moment for women's empowerment yeah. and sex positivity and so on. And for hetero males, not so much of that kind of conversation. I mean, men kind of did what they always did, I suppose, but like it wasn't cool, you know, mm. um, to be a hetero male. Um, <laughs> but, oh cr- so crap, cool I, not so cool. Um, <laughs> So in the midst of this, the poet Robert Bly, who I admired, he was a good poet, started this kind of men's movement and men were going into the woods and like beating on drums and stuff. And they were kind of trying to get in touch. Okay. So they were trying to get in touch. It was like, there was this mythology of Iron John from like ancient England, I think that they were drawing upon. And it was basically like men trying to get in touch with a kind of archetypal masculinity that was not, that was in touch with emotions and that would kind of like mm. reconnect them to themselves in a natural way, right? And were they alone or were they together? It was men in together. groups. Okay, it was like great. these groups of, okay. and then, and it was quickly and roundly ridiculed, you know, like wow. across the board as like, oh, look at these, mm, you know, gross. either it was like too sensitive, you know, like too right. on the one side or it was too yeah. bro-y on yeah. the other side. And it's like, like when I think back to that, it's like some yeah. something like that is need. There mm. need to be groups of men coming together, yes. talking about masculinity yes. and dealing yes. with this. Because know? often, do you feel do you feel like when men get together, it's often comes out these environments ends up and end up being toxic. Th- this is my perception, mm. right? If you look at the like most male burning in, man, I don't know. Like I don't <laughs> maybe burning man. I don't know. I don't know what happens there. But <laughs> but when you think about fraternities, right? I right, mean, right, right like yeah, yeah. Uh, sports games, right? And the kind of toxicity that happens there. That's my perception that there are a lot of spaces for men to be together, but that those spaces don't always bring out connection between men and, and right. don't always allow a healthy expression and intimate connection between men because that's frowned upon, right? right. And, and even if you think, I mean, I think this is hilarious. I think it's hilarious that men can't hold hands or or hug in public, but they can slap each other's butt if they're wearing a football uniform, right? right. What does that say <laughs> about, you know, that you have to have this hyper-masculine uniform and literally armor, right? You have your shoulder pads and you're protected in all these ways. And then you can touch each other's butts and that's acceptable. <laughs> but then if you're just two guys hanging out and one of you's going through a breakup or one of you's just happy to see the other one, you can't just like touch each other and sit next to each other and enjoy a beautiful meal in a restaurant on a Friday night without, you know, it feeling awkward. If you guys are, you know, I, I had conversations with some of my best friends who are extremely progressive. My friend Tristan from Montreal, and he was like, when I hang out with other guys, I dress down. I think it's mm. so amazing that women, you guys go out to brunch together and you get, you put on makeup, you get right. pretty. And I don't under, I, I think that's so sweet that you're, you know, putting so much effort into, you're valuing that time with the other person. And right. if I wear cologne, if I'm hanging out with other guys, it's only acceptable if I'm going on a date after. There's something there that if I wear something too nice, they're going to say like, what What are you doing? Do you want, you're going out with a woman after this? So let me ask you this, going into the realm of just broad anecdotal, yeah. you know, experience here. I would imagine I mean, and I've seen movies and, you know, read books and stuff. So, I mean, it's my sense that among groups of women, there can be, you can have on the one hand, extremely emotionally open and yes. supportive communities. And on the other hand, a lot of competition to oh, be gosh. perfect, you oh, know, yeah. which creates the same yes. kind of emotional repression yes. that yes. we might be talking yes. about among men. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the thing about shame, right? So Brene Brown talks about the difference between quote unquote female and male shame in our society. So for women, it's, I'm not perfect. I have to have the perfect body, the perfect, I have to be the perfect friend, have to be the perfect mother, the perfect coworker. (laughs) And for men, it's, I can't be weak, Mm -hmm. right? I can't show weakness. And both of those, you know, shame prevents is the number one way to prevent a true connection and intimacy with other people because you feel like you can't show who you truly are, right? That there's something that you need to hide or be literally ashamed of. Are perfection and like strength different things here? If I think about it, trying to be perfect and trying to be fine and 
positive mm-hmm. all the time is a kind mm-hmm. of st- projection 100%. of strength. 100%. Yeah. And I think that b- that's why Brene Brown would say both of those, the antidote to that is vulnerability, right? right? So for women to be vulnerable with each other, usually, and I do this all the time, which is, you know, I, I think I did this yesterday, someone comes up to me, oh my God, your book tour looks so great. You're, And I'm like, I'm literally, Freaking I'm, out, yeah, I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm not wearing a bra right now. I think I've worn <laughs> my underwear two days in a row. Like, you know what I mean? I showed up to this party yesterday, like right off the Amtrak in my sweatpants because I just didn't even have time to. And no, I'm not perfect. And the book is doing well, but I'm still insecure about certain things. I, I, you know, it's I had this weird interview and I don't feel like I was perfect in it. And I think that for men, the challenge, right. and, and I know you, you tell me, but it seems like the challenge would be to, in your conversations with men, admit to weakness, whether it's sure. in, yeah, well, your job still, or yeah. in your relationship that I didn't perform in this part of my life and I don't really know how to deal with it. Exactly. I mean, even as a non-hyper pumped hyper masculine <laughs> man man i i think that it would be hard for me with the exception of a few specific friends that mm. i can think of to like if an interview went badly and i was feeling bad about it yeah. to say anything like that because then this sort of thing would hang in the air where you know rather than supporting you there would be this sort of sense of oh then maybe you really did fuck up you know kind of thing oh, you know really? like, you like that, whatever whatever's right. already in your head you it's know, gonna get worse would just amplify you know what's so funny oh my god this is so funny because <laughs> i i mean i probably i won't say his name but one of my really really, really close friends is is a dude and it's just so <laughs> no and, way and I, I know you heard it here first exactly. folks. Like, i have male friends <laughs> uh i love men and i love him and it's funny because I love him in so many ways, but he's so bad <laughs> at, but it's almost comical. So I, I still go to him when I have a really big problem. Like I went to him with like a breakup a year and a half ago with, you know, it's a big relationship. We were together for a long time. And I was like, oh, we broke up. And he was like, no, I loved David. And I was like, that's not what I want to hear right now. <laughs> and then at one point he also said, I was talking about it. I was like, you know, it's been really hard. And, you know, I, I, I just, I mean, I'm 32 now. I just don't want to do this again. And he said, well, maybe you just like can't date like maybe you're just bad at date like maybe nice. you're just not meant to date people and i was like i won't say his name but like, don't <laughs> i'll just say it matt it's like matt this is the this is the last thing i want to hear and again i don't know why i'm saying this i think it's it makes me think of matt is has a good heart he's such a good person in my life and such a loving person in my life but sometimes i feel like he is not equipped to have certain conversations with me and i wonder yeah if i i can relate to that because I go to women now with these difficult conversations Mm -hmm. much more often because I know that women are equipped to actually tell me something that will be helpful and not make me feel worse. I run into this, you know, I've been married for like 16 years. And so I run into this with, thank you. You know, my wife and I run into this with respect to if she is just feeling the need to talk about something. And I think I'm, she'd be more qualified to explain this than me, but I think I'm getting better at this. Mm. But where my tendency is always to be like super definitive, super honest and super like repairing the problem as opposed to actually listening. listening. And yeah, and you know, when what what she wants is simply to vent. Yes. And there's a fear in me, which I think now he, this goes back to. And this like, is the number one problem, by the way. I interviewed a therapist. She said the number one problem in heterosexual relationships between men and women is is and and on the man side is that because women do things too, but but is that listen. Don't try and <laughs> right, fix. Right, right, right. Exactly. And the reason, you know, when I analyze the impulse, right, when I sit there yeah. and I think, why am I trying to do this? Right. And I think I learned this from my mom, mm. who I would say taught me more in some ways about masculinity than my, my father did wow, simply because she was the more active parent. Right. Um, he was busy. He was traveling. Yeah. Right. Working. And from her, I learned to not fall into an emotional swamp. Right. Uh, you should, you know, th- yeah. like th- 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 there's a danger that yeah. the person would be trapped there. Mm. And so you always go to solutionism. Getting out of here. Getting out of here. Yeah, yeah, solutionism as opposed to mm. like indulging. Wow. And so this is some sort of productivity oriented yeah. pragmatism or whatever yeah. that she learned from yes. somewhere. And maybe it's how her dad was male. Yeah. I don't know, you know. And, and that's the, you know, it's kind of like the love languages, right? That it's important for women to understand that in that scenario, uh, 
you're trying to help, right? right. You're, th- this is how you're showing love to me is by trying to fix my problem for me. Right. And I need to be able to express to you that that's not, ha- that, that's not how I like not to be loved. Not what I need right, right? now. Yeah, or yeah. This is what, right. And so it's a thing too of, and this is why I think it's so important for women, all genders to be in these rooms together and have these conversations together because there's something there's a lot of miscommunication here. There's a lot, you know, men need to make some changes, but I think that women need to make some changes too. We need to be able to demand what we want. We need to be able to say what we need to. And again, these are very gendered notions of being a woman. These are things that we've learned and that are not helpful for us. And that's work that I've been doing. I mean, for the last 10 years in my relationships, but also in my life, which is I can't just blame men for all of my problems. (laughs) I can't just say, well, he's just trying to always fix me. I need to say, don't do that. And if you keep doing that, then We're I can blame you and yeah, leave. Yeah, yeah. But but I think that it's important. It's really important for us to see how just that we've learned things that are not helpful and that we need to work together to, to figure out how to fully express and be there for the people in, in our lives in the way that they want to be. So where this gets really complicated then, because the way we're talking right now, I mean, it's, you know, it's either it's either socially or it's biologically yeah. essentialist. We're saying right. men are doing this, women mm-hmm. are doing that, Right. Where things get really complicated is when we talk about performances of masculinity and femininity across the sexes. I mean, this is where I think people get very frustrated and confused because when I'm talking to you about this, like all of this makes sense to me. But if someone came along right now and said, well, that's, you know, that you are essentializing everything and Mm -hmm. that's actually not like there are many Mm -hmm. people on all aspects of that spectrum and like then how do we what do you think even so, have that conversation right. like, and and what do you think was well, so when, when you read all these you know things i've laid out in the book in terms of you know the the, the brain is a unisex organ a lot of these uh differences are sort of created by our society do you in in terms of your experience of being a man right how much of it do you think is socialized and how much of it do you think you, is ingrained. Right. So my sense is that, first of all, there's a spectrum of sexuality, like yeah. in terms of hormones that people produce, yes. even the our bodies. Genetics, and yeah. yeah. And then there's a spectrum of gender and gender performance. It makes sense to me that biology is kind of the origin of mm-hmm. some of this stuff, that like it emerged from biological differences that are not set in stone, that are not, you know, that are a spectrum. Mm-hmm. But then, like everything human, like we've manufactured social yeah. rules and around it, and not everyone fits into the right bucket or right. you know whatever, and so people suffer a great deal. And I mm-hmm. think that it is really important that we fight to make room for mm-hmm. people to express and live yeah. whatever their kind of sexuality and gender yeah. is, wherever they fall right. there, and not trap them. I was one of those boys, by the way, who wanted an Easy Bake Oven. Oh. Desperately, and like oh, I, I, I know like so ma- there's so many people I, listening right I, now. Like I think if someone <laughs> bought me an Easy Bake Oven now, I would like fall weeping to the floor. Like I, I like I want a damn Easy Bake Oven. You know what? Like I've decided that's my 50th birthday you present. Do that. <laughs> Have an Easy Bake Oven par- like theme party. If they still make them. I'm getting a goddamn oh, Easy Bake Oven. I'm so proud of you for doing that. You that might be very a tr- very transformative, beautiful ritual you can do for yourself. For real, the cookies are not not as good as you think they are I, I but they're a little watery yeah i mean it's cooked they with a little light pies bulb. i it's thought just, too but yeah, yeah yeah i mean i remember half of the time i'd pull it out and it was still just liquid <laughs> and i was like okay i'm i guess i'll drink the cookies <laughs> yeah yeah where i feel like we fuck things up is that yeah there is a even if you like a chinese medicine and chinese philosophy right. of, of the yin and the yang right it's female energy uh, male energy female energy is intuitive uh collaborative warm it takes in things right and the male energy exudes it's dominant it's aggressive and there's never been this idea that you need to have, if you are a man, you only have to have the male energy. It's right. that everyone has both. And not that there's one energy that's better than the other. And that's where I almost feel, you know, someone uh, at one of our book events, this woman actually, we were at, the, at a female space, so there were there was one dude, but um, it was mostly <laughs> women. And th- this woman said, what do I do when my female friends like are working in these highly sort of, you know, finance these traditionally male environments and they're taking on quote unquote toxic masculinity. You know, she's like yelling at me and she's being really rash and, and I don't know how to handle that. And she was I, like angry at you for not having a solution to that problem. Or? Basically, 
clear. No, but, well, no, she wasn't mad at me. She was trying to tell me. She how was do frustrated. I, she frustrated. was frustrated, but yeah. it was interesting for her to say, women are taking on these ma- sort of unhealthy masculinities. Masculine. Yeah. It, it, exactly. And in a way, it's because that is, I think, the misinterpretation of feminism, right? That if you look at the way that feminism is being interpreted by even people like Ivanka Trump, Ivanka Trump is a perfect example, right? She is this uh, so-called, she calls herself a feminist. And right. She what was her book called? Uh, women, women Who, who work, work. Right, right, right. And it's this. Which, which, as you point out in the book, like women have, have always, always worked. worked. Yes. You know, maybe not for money, but. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and brown and black women have always worked <laughs> yeah. against their will. And, right. and yeah, maybe white women's grandmothers fought for their right to work, as she says. But women have worked forever. But, but there's this idea that, that we have to take on male, character, male characteristics, right? That we have to interrupt people. We have to talk for longer. Right. And this assertiveness, I think that sometimes goes overboard. And I found myself, you know, mo- monitoring myself being like, okay, well, I have to stop putting exclamation points at the end of my slacks. I have to take on this kind of bitch role because that's how men act in the workplace. Can and I, in can, order to have value, I need to do that too. Anytime I hear somebody saying you have to do yeah. X, Y, or Z to succeed because that's how the only mm. way to do it, I feel that I'm being coerced oh, into uh, yeah. some form of masculinity or mm. some some Fox. some social performance that that I don't trust. Yeah. I'm like, no, I don't. Yes. No, I don't. Right. Like, because there's a million examples of people who did something in a different way mm-hmm. in every possible context mm-hmm. and who succeeded. And, you know, I, I don't know where people get the gender neutral balls to, to, (laughs) you know, to arrive at that kind of like definitive statement, you know, I know it sells books or whatever. It it does. And, 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 and it protects people, I I think, or it makes people feel like they're protecting you. Um, I think that's what a lot of parents are doing right now and, and educators. And I love parents and educators and they are, um, the hardest working people and they have the most important job in our society, which is raising, raising the next generation. I, I also get worried when we don't have this conversation about what we're doing to boys and the role models, the toys, all of this, right? We've right. had this conversation with girls and we've just not, we, we haven't had a mainstream conversation about it with, about boys. And I think that what's happening is that a lot of parents think that they're protecting their boys by telling them not to cry, by telling them don't put nail polish on. Oh my gosh, don't ever do that. Don't, don't get a, don't even ask for an easy bake oven. There's something wrong with you when you do right. that because they think that they're protecting them. And ultimately because of our society, they are those guys were the victims of this 40 person wedgie were often the ones that were believed to be gay that were believed to be feminine that were that were not no, that's right quitting. like if you go yes. to prison for example um, you better know how to defend yes. yourself you know kind of thing and like yes. and that is tragic it is yeah it is and so we need to transform our society and we did it really quickly with women not that oh my god we're not there yet um <laughs> right this is the unfinished gender revolution and as long as we have this unfinished gender revolution it's actually a tax on women it's a attacks on girls. It's obviously attacks on men and boys too, but it just, it doesn't benefit anyone for us to just have this one-sided view where girls can act more like boys and it's badass. It's cool. Right. But if boys act like girls, it's not. And that comes back to the feminine and male energy, right? We've diminished such important, quote unquote, traditional feminine qualities of collaboration, of empathy, of compassion, those are the things that we need more of in our society, right? And the fact that we put them, we place them in the hierarchy as below the male characteristics is not just bad for women, it's bad for men, it's bad for everyone. You know, it's very deep and it's very pernicious and it requires, part of the solution requires a lot of looking inside oneself. I mean, I think even probably a lot of women who would consider themselves progressive may find that they're less attracted to a man who isn't Mm -hmm. super assertive Mm -hmm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. because that's the model of manhood that they grew up with or, and then what are you unconsciously Mm -hmm. creating through, Mm -hmm. through, through those preferences? Uh, 100%. And, and, and where do those preferences come from? And do they make you happy? I mean, that's the thing. Right. Finally. Right. Right. So you like that kind of guy? Are you staying with that kind of guy? Right. Is is that working for you? Is that, is that kind of relationship really uh, what you desperately need and want? Or is (laughs) it what you think you should? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And to be completely honest, I've been through that journey. 
journey, right? And and I talk about going on the chivalry diet and realizing I was sort of part of this problem and that I was demanding that the men in my life have more emotional capability mm. and stop being so obsessed with this armor that you have as a man. But then I also, at the same time, when they wouldn't pay on the first date, when they wouldn't go out of their way to make me feel like I was on this pedestal because I, I'm a woman in the relationship, then I, I was unhappy with that. And again, that was my preference. But the people I was end, ending up with and that I was selecting were not the people that I ultimately you know, wanted to be with. They weren't making you happy. No, because yeah. yeah, we weren't able to have conversations, right. right? Or when I would have a problem, they would say, I don't understand. I gave you all these things. Uh, <laughs> I and literally, right? And then you feel bad. And then you realize you're... Again, you're fitting into these preordained roles and it's unconscious. It's just like, well, that's just the way you're supposed to be, but it's it's not making people happy. And I think that this is why it's so important for us to have this conversation right now before the crisis point. I mean, I've had men come to my book events and say, you know, one guy said, I just, my girlfriend just broke up with me. I'm, and he had tears in his eyes. He was like, I'm going to read this book. I hope it help, helps me. You know, I need to be better. And I just think if we were able to have this conversation before the breaking point, before the divorce, before things right. uh, fall apart as more of a preventative thing. Um, how many, yeah, like marriages and relationships could we save? It's funny, you know, uh, the a conversation that will be coming up later in this season on the show will be with Ibram Kendi, who has just written a, one of the best books that I've ever read on yeah. on race, uh, the um, ab about anti-racism and sort mm. of, how, it's called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Right. And there too, he's making he's making a similar move and okay. his own life journey took a similar trajectory where like he went to a historically black college. He went through a kind of revolution where he decided that basically all white people were evil. Yeah. He then ultimately has come to start a foundation and do super important anti-racism work, which is grounded in the idea that racism is not a person. It is a it's policies yeah. and ideas that emerge from policies and exactly. that racism is possible for everyone that yes. you know which is not to make a big Pollyanna dance in a circle nobody's <laughs> to blame blah 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 but like but yeah. that if we actually want to make any change yes. there has to it has to begin with human compassion mm. and understanding and assuming the best in people not the worst in yeah. people and that is not just a better more productive approach to building a better society it's also such a better way personally to go about your life the thinking that people are not out there trying to hurt you right. that they're not out there trying to make the world a worse place they're trying to make it a better place that they've just been misguided in right. how to do that you know again Brene Brown I mean how many times will I quote Brene Brown this should be a game uh in a podcast but she has done work with domestic violence uh, survivors, female domestic violence survivors, she noticed a difference in terms of women who would leave their abuser and those who had more trouble leaving. Mm. And obviously there's economics, there's there's all kinds of different uh, sure. things that go in into that. But all of those things aside, the women who were more likely to leave their abusers were, I think, counterintuitively, the ones who believed that the men who were abusing them were doing the best that they could, right? You would think the women who were thinking, he's doing the right, best that he right. can with what he has would then be more likely to stay and put up with shit. No, it's actually the opposite. Interesting. And I found that through writing this book, that's been my journey too, of believing that men around me are doing the best that they can with what they've been given and what they've been given is pretty bad. And maybe if we change what they've been given, they'd be able to be better men. And that has made my life personally, I think it made this book better. And I think it made this conversation more productive and more accessible for more people. Right. It also made my life so much better because I'm not gonna, I, I'm not putting up with things that I may have put up with before because sure. I don't think that men are inherently like this. I don't think that men are just built to hurt me. I think that they are built to be good and they are equally in need and they want to give intimacy, but I, I'm not going to stick around if you're not able to, I'm, I'm not going to stick around with right. something that's not acceptable. Right. And well, and even disregarding or putting aside for the moment, the practical consequences in terms of relationships, just at the level of the heart. Oh God. Being yeah. able to see people as mm -hmm. people makes a tremendous difference yeah. in where you're coming from. Oh my God. Totally. Yeah. Totally. We're used to having this conversation about gender from the head and I've been having it from the head. <laughs> 
for a very long time, literally in you know academia and in right. written work here are and my, theory. Here are my citations and yes. here's why my it's, experts are better than your it, experts. Exactly, and, yeah. and it's it's political, right? It's like we need to fight for this system, but we need to have a conversation around gender from the heart. And and when you have it from the heart, that conversation is so much more rich. You're able to tap into to your point earlier. You know, men, our, our fathers particularly, I think, have never really been given the tools to have this conversation and to understand their lives through a gendered framework. Right. And that some of their experiences, again, in those male spaces or even with women or with their mothers or with their fathers, that I wasn't the problem and that it wasn't my fault. That's why this conversation to me is so hopeful and positive is that it's a conversation about self-discovery and understanding your life and thinking about your life and having more information about why your life has been the way that it is and why you are the way it is and having more control and freedom over who you want to be in the world. And I, I think another form of toxic masculinity, which we may not have all the time to unpack, but let's a little bit, um, yeah. is this thing, what I think of as a kind of like rational scientism, mm. which, you know, can exist in men and women. But yeah. but this idea that going back to what we were saying about the head and the heart, the idea that any conversation that is yeah. somehow anchored in the heart or emotionally connected is a danger to objectivity and that mm. we must only and always debate and argue at yeah. the level of facts and right. resources and right. scientific proof and so forth and so mm. on. I understand how science works and I fully support scientific investigation yeah. toward as close as we can get to objective truths. Yeah. But there is so much that when we discuss and debate, debate it that way, it comes down to who's the more effective rhetorician, what studies have come out recently. I mean, mm. you know, who can more quickly cite mm -hmm. how many experts and anyone can throw experts back and forth forever, forever. You can make any study to prove anything you want. Exactly. If, this is also the thing you learn kind of, you know, yeah. through, there's going to, if you're looking to prove anything, you can probably find a study that, that, that proves it. And I think that this is my own thinking. And I don't know if this is true, but I think that women generally are more skeptical of objectivity and this right. rational, right, this scientific approach because we have been so <laughs> uh, <laughs> mistreated Dissected in it, right? And, and it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and we are very skeptical of objectivity because quote unquote objectivity has usually meant a male perspective, a right. white male perspective. And people of color are also very subjective of this scientific approach because, you know, we, as we know, I mean, the, I lay out a little bit of research in the book about this, but how like medical students, for example, and, yeah, know, eugenics and medical, half of medical students believe that black people feel less pain from the same amount, right? right, right and right, and right, that their right. blood coagulates less quickly. These are very dangerous lies yeah, from, there's from a history medical. of like atrocious, a, quote unquote, objectivities. Exactly, in science, yeah. exactly. And so I think that that's why we're more, yeah, skeptical of it. And again, I think skepticism is good in either direction, right? That yeah, we I mean, be, I come from science people right, and, and medical people and am really disturbed by what happened with the anti-vax movement. Mm. And so, I mean, there's a part of me that very strongly wants to hold the line, not mm. on saying that science always has all the answers, yeah. but like, let's not be so open-minded that our brains fall out. Right, you know, kind right, of thing. right. right. You know. But that's why you need, again, it's, it's, you, 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 need a, you need the biology conversation <laughs> yeah, 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 with the social yeah, yeah, conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. You need yeah. the seeding ground on one thing doesn't mean that it's all or nothing. Exactly. And it's hard to have nuance. Especially on Instagram. I was going to say no social offense. media. Like, <laughs> yes, there's no I mean, nuance. That's why I keep one sort of one toe in it. Like, yeah. I mean, I know it's where a lot of the conversation is, but, you know, I was more in Twitter in the past than I am now. Mm. I, I never really made the jump to Instagram, Facebook quite heavily, especially around <sighs> the election. And yeah. like, it's just, yeah, yeah. I got to keep it yeah. kind of like at arm's length. Yeah. You know? And people come after you. I mean, even choosing to write a book about men oh. was <laughs> a risk. And I knew that. But you're brave out there. I like how you like I like how you go and both talk to people who extremely disagree with you and just kind of like I mean maybe there's some bravado in there too but you brush things off well too thank you, know. you. I yeah. block things out I think I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. no I mean I, I co-host a show them off. I laugh know. them off and, and just it's helped me you know, I, I co-hosted a show with a Republican for a year now. Um, we just wrapped the show actually last night. And it was hard in many respects, but it was also, it changed me. It really did. And against my will, I didn't want to change. <laughs> I didn't want to. But it helped me understand 
it didn't necessarily change my position on core issues and core values that I have, but it's made me understand the importance of framing and that framing certain conversations in the way that we are sometimes, even when it comes to men is a perfect example, and, and gender, but even climate change and everything, the framing is really important. And I don't actually use, I try not to use the word toxic masculinity. Right, I noticed and that. And uh, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. No, I mean, but that took me, that was a journey. And I I think it appeared 172 times or something like that in the book. I, <laughs> and 10 days before I was about to go to print, I wrote to my editor and I was like, I'm going to take out that term. And she was like, no, you're not. Uh, and I said, <laughs> yes, I can't put that in. I actually think it's really not the right framing for this conversation. Mm. And and it's only reaching people who are already who already understand what it means. And I want to be reaching people who may right. have never really thought about masculinity at all. And I think using the term idealized masculinity makes it a more parallel conversation that we've had with feminism, which is how are the these ideals right. affecting you that you are not able to achieve and it's a much more positive framing than toxic masculinity. Like, these are the things you're doing wrong. Yeah, like, I can listen to it and I can think, okay, toxic masculinity is the kind of masculinity that is toxic for the aspect of masculinity or the performance of masculinity that is toxic for both men yes, and women. exactly. So, I mean, I can distance, yes. but I can see a lot of men just seeing that as meaning mm-hmm. men are toxic yes. or something, yes. which and then yes. dismissing it. And, and if Sheryl Sandberg had written Lean In and called it toxic femininity, overcoming, to- I don't yeah. know if it would have been a best-selling book, you know? And and I don't know if it would have reached so many people that would have never really identified as as, as feminists or would have thought about these things. And so, yeah, I think it's, framing is super important. Framing, even in, in, you know, um, George Lakoff is, don't think of an elephant. And he has talked a lot about framing and and particularly in in the context of political conversation. So he talks about climate change, for example, that we should be framing climate change Yes, as we need to take care of the earth. We need to take care of our ne- of, of this next generation. We need to be kind to our planet. If we want Republicans to be on board, that might not be the best way to frame this problem. Right. Perhaps framing it as a security threat, which it is, right? The greatest threat to our national security is you know, us all being underwater uh, sure. because of these hurricanes and because of these terrible, you know, our, our inaction when it comes to this climate crisis. And even calling it a climate crisis versus climate change, I think was a very smart change in, in framing in climate activists because right. it is a crisis, right? And so it's not about saying... Or, you know, framing it for conservatives or Republicans in terms of economic threats as well. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's not to rank one of the, you know, that, that one framing is better than the other, but we need to, and again, through these conversations with my, my co-host or Michael, I, I, I would realize, oh, wow. Yeah. You're not against me. You don't mm-hmm. want to, you're not evil. You're not trying to destroy <laughs> right, the earth. Right. You just have different priorities or different values, but our values can intersect and we can find this quote unquote common ground, which is so cliche now to use in our conversations, but I really do think that there is, but we have to be able to talk to each other as humans. No, I was thinking you're worried about uh, mass immigration. Go ahead and heat up the area south of the equator another, you know, yes. five degrees exactly. and see what happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So what I knew would happen, because these are important issues yes. and I just wanted to talk, has happened, which is that we have spent what would have been, or what I allotted as the whole yes. hour, just talking. On this? Okay. Yeah. Great. So... I love this. And oh. thank you for sharing and being really vulnerable in this conversation. And yeah, sharing parts of you with me and, and all of us. I well, think this either is, I'm a terrible narcissist or I understand that it's to my benefit as a man or yeah. both. I don't know. <laughs> and you're helping a lot of other men too. I thank you for your book and for opening these conversations so generously and... Yeah, I think it's important work that you're doing. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm here with Liz Plank, and her book is For the Love of Men, A New Vision for Mindful Masculinity. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. That's our show. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the ideas we talked about today. Please find me at jasongotts.com. You can sign up for my Someday to Exist newsletter or email me directly from there. And we'll be back next week with something extraordinary. I hope you can join me.